Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Are you ready for it just so happened? <laughs> Excellent. Please welcome to the stage your host, Richard Pulsford. You may recognise the voice. That was me speaking. I am Richard Pulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 28th of July. That's before we delve into some of the history of the city where today's show is taking place. We are in God's own country, the heart of Yorkshire. Yes, we're in New York. Yay! Fantastic. And we are performing today as part of the Great Yorkshire Fringe Festival. Now, the festival aims to bring the best in comedy, cabaret, theatre and music to Yorkshire. Now in its fifth year, it has expanded beyond Parliament Street to put on shows in different venues across the city centre. And our venue is one of those at 41 Monk Gate. Established over 20 years ago when John Cooper bought the Trinity Methodist Church Sunday School building. It's been converted into a thriving theatre and performing arts centre, used today by a range of professional and amateur companies to perform new and exciting productions. Now, York is a fantastic location to host a history show. Its most famous thoroughfare is a narrow cobble street lined with beautifully preserved Elizabethan buildings known as the Shambles, which is an apposite moment to introduce the panel for tonight's show. Please welcome to the stage Alex Leem, Lisa Vernon, Tommy Tomsky and John Rands. No, John. No, John. Okay, at some point, Soon. John, if you're in the house, there's an empty chair for you. So You've been Boris Johnson, it seems. So. Um, anyway, our first guest tonight is Alex Leem, a true comedy veteran, a master of audience work and of writing material to a brief. He runs his own comedy writer's workshop in Derby, as well as the popular improv provocateur show. This is what Tommy said about you, sir. So. I was about to say, I, I recognise none of that yeah, right. at well, all. You have a right to really correct me, if necessary. No, no, no it's, it's, it's all true. It's just so glowing. I didn't recognise it. Because it's one of my blurbs, Alex. Oh, oh, oh bless you. Best blurbs. Bless you. So, over to you, Alex, for, okay. your, for your history piece. Thank you. Okay. So, well, when researching historical things that happened on the 28th of July, um, they had some comedic potential. Uh, I came to one conclusion that the 28th of July is the most depressing day in history. <laughs> right, so just, uh, just case in point, I'm not kidding. Right, this, what I've got in front of me, is my short list of things that are the funniest. The Black Death hits Europe. <laughs> London suffers its worst day of bombing during the Blitz. And Cilla Black has her first UK number one. <laughs> Thank God for the Millennium Bug. <laughs> Hooray! Uh, because on this day in 1999, it just so happened that the US government um, issued a directive that all government departments must be Y2K compliant by August the 1st, or risk being shut down on the 31st of December. So the Millennium Bug, for those of you who, who weren't around or can't remember, it was a flaw in computer systems uh, that meant that they uh, couldn't recognise dates in the year 2000. Okay? Uh, judging by a few nods in the audience, I guess we're all Millennium Book survivors. <laughs> yeah, good, excellent. 
Uh, so, yeah, so it could lead to possible uh, systems failure and some uh, catastrophic uh, consequences. Uh, so, in the middle of all this, the US government gives all of its department three days to get their act together <laughs> and get everything sorted by the August the 1st, and their threat is, if you don't do it, we'll shut you down in four and a half months' time. They've reached that stage that every irate parent gets to, where they're just issuing irrational threats. <laughs> Basically, it started probably in January when the US government was banging on the door of the Treasury going, knock, 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 have you guys done your homework? The Treasury panics and pulls his crash bandicoot. Just goes, uh, I'll do it tomorrow morning, Mr. President. We're now getting on to July. The government's at the absolute end of its tether. It's now doing the equivalent. If you guys back there don't stop fighting, I'm going to turn this car around. <laughs> so the um, Millennium Bug. It was huge news in 99, uh, but it passed me by a bit, because uh, back then, computers weren't so commonplace in the home. I didn't have a computer at this point. It wasn't on my big list of concerns. Right? Just uh, for a bit of context, uh, things in order of importance to me in 1999, in reverse order, were three, the millennium bug, two, how the hell can Ian Beale punch that far above his weight with Tamsin Althwaite? <laughs> right? I had to research that pretty well. It's not on the BBC History site for some reason. <laughs> and one is the lie I'm telling about how I lost my virginity believable. <laughs> to put that into some context for you, it was 1999, I was 16. Some more context, no. It wasn't believable. <laughs> it was a complete lie. Also in 99, I was in the running for the Booker Prize for fiction for the story about how I lost my virginity. Uh, but I digress. I digress. Uh, the Millennium Bug at the time, it was in the news constantly. Right? And in the run-up uh, to the deadline, there was constant scare stories uh, about the worst-case scenario and what happens if uh, the powers that be don't get their act together before the 31st. In many ways, the Millennium Bug was a bit like Brexit. All the world was talking about it. Everyone was sick of hearing about it on the news. Really costly to fix. Well, the Millennium Bug was not like Brexit, was nothing was written about it on the side of a bus. Planes won't fall out of the sky. They probably won't leave the tarmac. But most of all, the Prime Minister didn't push back New Year's Day by four months. <laughs> and on that, the Millennium Bug, I thank you. Alex Lean. So it's on this day, 28th of July in 1540, that Thomas Cromwell, one-time chief minister to Henry VIII, was executed. Now, Cromwell was one of the strongest and most powerful proponents of the English Reformation. He helped to engineer annulment of the king's marriage to Queen Catherine so that Henry could lawfully marry Anne Boleyn. Henry failed to obtain the Pope's approval for that annulment in 1534, so Parliament endorsed the king's claim to be the supreme head of the Church of England giving him the authority to annul his own marriage. Now, during his rise to power, Cromwell made many enemies, including Anne Boleyn, as he played a prominent role in her downfall. He later fell from power after arranging the king's marriage to German princess Anne of Cleves. Cromwell had hoped that the marriage would breathe fresh life into the Reformation in England, but when Henry finally met her, the king was shocked by her plain appearance he felt had been duped by Cromwell's passing on of exaggerated claims of Anne's beauty and a very flattering painting of her by Hans Holbein the Younger. 
So Henry had the marriage annulled six months later. Cromwell, though, well, he was arrested at a council meeting on the 10th of June, 1540, and accused of various charges. He was imprisoned in the tower, lost all his titles and property, and was condemned to death without trial. He was spared a worse death by uh, not being hanged, drawn, and quartered. On the morning of 28th of July, 1540, therefore, according to John Fox, Cromwell called for his breakfast, and after cheerfully eating the same, he set out for the scaffold on Tower Hill. He godly and lovingly exhorted them that uh, were about him on the scaffold and committed his soul to God, then patiently suffered the stroke of the axe by a ragged and butcherly miser who very ungoodly performed the office. After his execution, Cromwell's head was set on a spike on London Bridge. And on the same day as Cromwell's execution, Henry married wife number five, Catherine Howard. She herself would be beheaded the following year after being accused of adultery. Our second guest actually is Lisa Vernon. Now Lisa has been a panelist with us before at our show in Ludlow last month where we found out that Lisa specializes in beheadings, medieval weaponry, and weird ways to bury people. I should point out that's the study of those things. So, yes. Over to you, Lisa, thank you. Hi, so um, I'm gonna start with a, a little story, uh, just our uh, uses and comfortably. Um, the first time I visited Sutton Hoo was early one winter's morning, and as the pale sun was rising over the tops of the burial mounds that could just be seen breaking through the ground mist. It was such a breathtaking sight. I put my foot in a rabbit hole, fell over, smacked myself in the head with an electronic distance measurer, and spent the rest of the day in A&E. However, unlike all the other relationships that I've had that started with a trip to casualty, this one has lasted 25 years. So the burial site at Sun Hoo in Suffolk is one of the most important Anglo-Saxon sites outside of Yorkshire or Derbyshire. And I know it's hard to believe that there is anything of any importance outside Yorkshire or Derbyshire. But it is a known fact that whilst the Saxons created Sussex in the south, Wessex in the west, Essex in the east, they were not that keen on going north for no sex. <laughs> Considering that they were southern shandy drinkers, you have to then hand it to them, that burying a 90-foot ship is impressive. Although akin to some of the showing off you still see in the south, the braying crowd of city traders, guzzling champagne cocktails with real gold flakes, I'm so rich, I can afford to waste money on my poo. <clears throat> ha! We're so rich and powerful, we don't need this sheep. Stick it in the ground. We've got loads of other ones. And then, of course, the Vikings came along and won up the Saxons. You buried a ship where no one can see it. Ha! We're just going to set one on fire. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Back to the point. On Friday, the 28th of July, 1939, inside the ship burial, the crushed remains of an iron helmet were found. The remains consisted of many fragments of iron covered with embossed boars and dragons. Thought to belong to King Redwald of East Anglia, the Sutton Hoo helmet became the saving grace of every Anglo-Saxon archaeologist. 
the Boar Helmet offered a strong link to the epic poem Beowulf. Finally, the Dark Ages became sexy. Prior to that, Roman archaeologists had just dug through the Saxon stuff to get to a mosaic or an amphitheater. And Viking archaeologists, they've always been irritating, showing off by digging up whole pitfalls of human remains with epic injuries that they'd also managed to survive for years. So Saxon specialists have to be content with the knowledge that if there's a pit burial full of Scandinavian remains, it was probably Saxons that put them there. Saxons aren't even all that metal. I fell asleep at a music festival listening to Saxon. <laughs> a monomorph, however, sat fair to a Viking ship on stage. Ha 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 ha! We're so rich and powerful, we don't even need this stage. <clears throat> sorry. Becoming a female archaeologist, sorry, becoming a female weaponry specialist was not easy. I joined the Arms and Armoury Society at Sheffield University and spent most of my time wearing helmets while lads hit me on the head with swords saying, can you feel it? <laughs> Which was not dissimilar to my sexual encounters at university. <laughs> Here, hold my helmet. <clears throat> I've been lucky to study helmets in detail. The Benty Grange helmet in Sheffield, the Coppergate one in York, and the Pioneer, Pioneer helmet, which is now in Leeds. The Anglo-Saxon word for helmet was probably Grimhelm, which means a mask helmet, or Boarhelm, a boar helmet, or even Banhelm, a bone helmet. Now, these words might be familiar to any of you that are into World of Warcraft, those individuals who spend many a happy hour in their rooms with their bone helmets. <laughs> Telling people I am an expert on helmets has not always got me the academic respect that I would like. I often found an outbreak of tittering would occur during my lectures. The helmet is spectacular and larger than expected, although rusty. Here you can see the ridges in the helmet, which would have looked impressive and made the helmet so much more effective. The firm shaft on this particular helmet would have enabled it to withstand significant impact. The boar imagery, crest and visor all find parallels in Beowulf, as does the helmet's gleaming appearance. And in Beowulf, when Hrothgar laments the death of his close friend Asher, he recalls how Asher was my right-hand man. When ranks clashed and our helmets had to take a battering in the line of action. Now, one word that the Anglo-Saxons really should be remembered for is the fact that they invented the idea of the stand-up comedian, the Helitha Smith, which translates as laughter smith. So, I thought I'd finish, if anybody accuses me of not using new material, with two jokes that are actually over a thousand years old. From the Codex Exoniensis, a 10th century Anglo-Saxon poetry book. So here's the first joke. What hangs at a man's thigh and wants to poke the hole, it's often poked before. Anyone? The key, yes. It's the oldest joke. What is the last thing a man handles 
before he goes into battle. His helmet. Thank you very much. Lisa Vernon. Uh, it's, it's remiss of me. I've, I've written a lot of history for this show, and I've, I forgot to include a lot of jokes. So uh, can I just do this joke with you yes. uh, together? Right, OK. Knock, knock. Who's there? Sutton. Sutton who? We've just done that. Thank you. Good. Excellent. <laughs> if you were concentrating, that was Sutton. Hey, good. On 28th of July, 1655, Serrano de Bergerac died. Now, he was a French novelist and playwright, probably born into a Gascon family, of minor nobility in March 1619. Educated at home and then by a tutor in Paris, he joined the military in 1638 before returning to Paris to embark on his career as a writer. <coughs> now, as in Edmund Rostand's eponymous play, Serrano de Bergerac had a large nose. The model for Roxanne was his beautiful cousin, who in real life married Serrano's fellow soldier, Baron Christian du Noyviette. <laughs> Uh, incidentally, Rostand's play is responsible for introducing the word panache into the English language. Now, some biographers such as Jean-Luc Enic and Jacques Prévost have postulated that Serrano wasn't in reality homosexual. It's unclear how the real-life Serrano died. It could have been from an unspecified disease. He had been confined in a private asylum. But he also made enemies and fought duels and he sustained injuries when his patron, the uh, Duc d'Apaillon, had his carriage attacked in a botched assassination attempt. Whatever the cause, Serrano de Bergerac died on this day in 1655, just aged 36, at the house of his cousin, Pierre de Serrano in Sanois. So, our third guest is Tommy Tomsky. He hasn't got his introduction written by Alex, so something went wrong there. But anyway, uh, without Alex's help, he describes himself as a wild man of sorts and curator of the often funny comedy nights in Derbyshire. As an imaginative weaver of narrative with questionable callbacks and a rough and ready delivery, he's basically everything you could expect from a charismatic delivery driver turning up with a cold pizza. Thank you. That was written by yourself, so it must be accurate. Yeah. Uh, over to you, Tommy. Thank you. Excellent. Well, I'd just like to start off by saying that uh, I left school with no GCSEs, so I may have gone in a little bit over my head on this panel. Um, technically, I think I've blagged my way onto this panel in a similar sense to how Willy Wonka got his first job as health and safety executive at the chocolate factory. <laughs> But we shall begin. I'm also I'm not very good at remembering things, and I'm quite awful at writing things down. So will the owner of the vehicle with the registration number DY66MXE please move your vehicle? Uh, for our listeners, uh, Tommy is waving around a registration plate. He'd also like me to point out that he's looking particularly attractive today. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> So, um, uh, yes, yeah, so um, it just so happened that on this day of July the 28th in 1914, um, uh, we saw the beginning of episode one, season one of the World War Saga, available to you on Netflix. Um, uh, as I say, it was a time where um, it was the day that Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, kicking off the first war of the First World War the fight to start all fights. So cast your minds back to a time where, um, where people put arsenic and mercury into makeup, when we were really 
really enjoying the electricity that we could find, but we didn't know how to wire it up properly, and also where we were using asbestos for all manner of wonderful things leading up to and including children's inhalers. So we shall move on. We, um, so basically, to set this up, we've got to cast our minds back to a month prior to the assassination of Franz Ferdinand by uh, Gabriello Princip. Now, Gabriello Princip wasn't a great marksman at all. In fact, when he'd missed the mark in shooting school, people would often remark and laugh at how wide he missed the mark. Um, uh, he would go home. I imagine his mother would be very much like, oh, Gabriello, have you scored another uh, own target today at shooting class? And he'd be like, mother, I'm an adherent of the radicalist idea which aims at destroying the present system through terrorism. Oh, that's nice, Gabriella. Would you want beans on your tea, uh, on your toast for tea? <laughs> um, uh, no, Mum, I'm sure I'll be able to grab a sandwich, would be what I imagine he'd answer with. <laughs> um, uh, on the opposite end of that, Franz Ferdinand was an excellent shot. He, by the age of 50, he was a very prevalent hunter and he'd managed to mount over 5,000 stags in his castle at Canapisht, um, which is in what is known as the Czech Republic. Um, uh, mounting 5,000 stags, incidentally, is what can be achieved in a year by the hen parties visiting Blackpool. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, so um, the, the, the strange thing about the day that he visited Sarajevo um, was that it was on the Serbian National Day. Now, Serbian relations to Austria-Hungary weren't great at the time. It's what I imagine would be the equivalent of Jamie Oliver visiting the Mansfield annual Turkey Twizzler Fun Day. <laughs> Not a great move. But, um, uh, as I say, he was assassinated somewhat um, out of chance when uh, Franz Ferdinand took a wrong turn. Now, in the month between that and the 28th, that was the 28th of June, and we've got the 28th of July is where war was declared, there was a lot of very strange happenstance um, in terms of um, the irony that Germany uh, would basically say to Austria-Hungary, we're going to have your back no matter what. That's what the Kaiser told them in Austria-Hungary. At the same time, he decided to go on holiday just after saying that, it's the, as I say, it's, it's what I imagine it's like when people receive some of the emails I send at work and then I put the out of office reply and just leave the place and look at the ensuing chaos when I return. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it was a very, very, very strange time. Um, uh, one of the um, major points of it is people argue, was it Franz Ferdinand being assassinated that caused the start of the First World War? Was it the actual declaration of war on the 28th of July? Or was it the fact that Russia had broken the proverbial pool queue in the corner of the pub literally three minutes before a fight was even going to break out? Um, I would say it's definitely the latter. Um, but um, I will finish on this point. The war did eventually reach York in 1916. Uh, nine people tragically were killed by a Zeppelin attack in that war. I think it's safe to say that wasn't a good year. Good year, <laughs> Zeppelin. Oh, no. And that was my main zinger. <laughs> Uh, that's five minutes of history. That's Tommy Tomsky. Thank you so much. You're sure it's only 5,000 in Blackpool? I'm quite surprised. But anyway. uh, 
having been there uh, to do a gig or, or two, yes, anyway. Uh, 28th of July, 1750, Johann Sebastian Bach, German composer and musician, died in Leipzig, age 65. He's known for instrumental compositions such as the Art of Fugue, Brandenburg Concertos, Goldberg Variations, etc. Since the 19th century, the Bach revival, since that revival, he's been generally regarded as one of the greatest composers of the Western musical canon. Now, by 1749, Bach's health was declining, and in March and in April 1750, he had eye surgery. This was performed by the British eye surgeon John Taylor, a man who had been appointed royal eye surgeon to King George II, but whom was later recognised as a charlatan because, um, hmm, he's believed to have blinded hundreds of people. <laughs> Bach was himself blinded and died from complications brought on by the unsuccessful surgery, thanks to John Taylor. Now, he was originally buried at Old St. John Cemetery in Leipzig, and the grave went unmarked until 1894, when his remains were located and moved to a vault in St. John's Church. Unfortunately, that building was destroyed by Allied bombing during World War II, so in 1950, Bach's remains were taken to their present grave in St. Thomas's Church, although later research has called into question whether the remains are actually Bach's or not. But the liturgical calendar of the Episcopal Church remembers Bach annually with a feast day on this day, 28th of July, together with George Friedrich Handel and Henry Purcell. So, our fourth guest is here. John has actually been a panelist with us twice before in our first show in Brighton in May and at our show in Bedford uh, just last week, actually. But suffice to say that he is definitely now our John Rams, even if he isn't the John Rams. <laughs> So there's a reference for those who listen to the podcast on a regular basis there. Over to you, John. Thank you. Thank you. So um, in previous podcasts, I've talked about the, uh, the first American, uh, Virginia Nadere. I've talked about the first lady prime minister of this country, but today it's a completely different subject. I'm taking about 90 years to the day where Jacqueline Lee Bouvier was born, a woman who was going to grow up to be the first lady of the United States of America. Jacqueline Lee Bouvier uh, had a number of sisters, including Lee Bouvier and Marge Bouvier, who later found fame by marrying Homer Simpson. <laughs> Jacqueline was from a, uh, a New York society family. Uh, it was a high society family, but a family under the shadow of her father. Uh, her father was a, uh, a drinker and a womanizer. Uh, his name was John, but he went by the name of Jack Bouvier. Uh, but she managed to escape that uh, when she met a senator uh, who was a, oh, a drinker and a womanizer uh, <laughs> called John, but who went by the name of Jack Kennedy. Jackie obviously took a name from her father, Black Jack, and was then known as Jackie Kennedy after her marriage. Jackie and Jack uh, met through that traditional love story of uh, boy meets girl after boy's wealthy, fun, uh, politically connected father uh, spoke to a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and had him arrange meetings with his son with various high society women to land credibility to his son's political career. It's that age-old story. That's a, that's a show of hands of all the people who met your partners here like that. <laughs> I don't, none, none here tonight, no? No, uh, it, it, it's a completely different world, isn't it? I mean, I met my other half at the Two for One Tequila night at our local singer's bar, <laughs> which was really embarrassing because I told her I was going to be gigging in Wales that day. And it is, it is a completely different world. This whole political elite, when you read into them, it's very strange. And what I hate about it most is it actually makes me marginally agree with one of the things that they said during the recent Trump campaign, 
where they talk about the American political society being completely moved from reality. And you look at how these people live their lives. Uh, I mean, shortly after their marriage, before he went for his presidential run, uh, Jack and Jackie Kennedy had split up because of the tremendous amount of affairs uh, that John F. Kennedy had had. Uh, but the families brought them back together because they thought it would be best for them uh, because they were from a Catholic family and he was never going to make president if they had a divorce. Uh, so they made arrangements uh, that he was no longer going to let her know about his affairs. Now, I've never had any affairs, but I'm pretty sure if I tried to make that argument on my other half, I wouldn't get much track. And that's it. They're in a completely different world. They're completely away from us. And you know what's worse about that? Being told that by Donald Trump, who was a, a son of a billionaire, who was also lived in such a bizarre world, he thinks it's okay to go on TV and talk about how attractive his own daughter is. Being told that people are, are separate from the real world by Donald Trump is being told that Reiki is a load of bollocks by a homeopathist. <laughs> anyway. Moving on from that bizarreness, uh, Jack and Jackie became the power couple uh, of the era. Uh, her old money charm, his brash new money uh, power, made them sort of a really popular couple, and they very, very quickly made their way into power. A little known fact, so though popular were they as a couple, Jack and Jackie, they were in fact the models for uh, Howard and Hilda uh, from the sitcom Ever Decreasing Circles. Uh, and it was only an badly timed grease spot on, uh, on the day of his death that meant that JFK wasn't killed wearing a pink Chanel suit. No, that one didn't work, did it? Apologies. <laughs> Jack and Jackie Kennedy separated a number of times during their marriage. Uh, one of the last times they separated was actually shortly before he died. Uh, Jackie, quite tragically, had had a, a miscarriage because uh, they had had a family, they had their children together, and as much as they led separate lives and had separate love lives, the, two, the couple were reported as loving each other and loving their kids. Uh, she was heartbroken after a miscarriage, and in the, uh, 1963, she went... Uh, to stay with a friend and um, while she was there she spent time staying on a yacht with a friend of a friend a man called Aristotle Onassis uh, this was literally in the weeks before JFK died uh, she then returned back to America on the fateful day of her husband's assassination and it's very easy when you talk about Jackie Kennedy's to describe her as uh, almost like a flake just somebody who breathes through life being the wife of famous and rich men but you understand the fortitude and understand the, the, the pink suit I alluded to earlier on. Uh, and famously, the pink suit she was wearing when her husband was killed right next to her was splattered in his blood and gore. She refused to take off uh, through the inauguration of the next president, uh, the emergency inauguration for the flight home until she returned to the White House. She wouldn't change out of it. She said, no, I want them to see what they did to my Jack. Now, there is a woman of fortitude, and it's very easy to not see that side of her. Um, it's a side point when you look at the relationship we have with our, she had with Aristotle and Assis that I feel that conspiracy theorists in this world have really missed a trick. Because we have a, a, a famously beautiful woman who went on a boat and reportedly did start to fall in love with this Greek billionaire uh, shortly before her husband was mysteriously killed. Uh, after the death of JFK, she was under the protection of the Kennedy family. She didn't have uh, any money of her own. All, of, all the Kennedy money went to her kids. So she was under the uh, protection of that family, uh, under uh, Bobby Kennedy, uh, Jack's brother, and she worked with him to help his political career until he was then killed. Uh, and then she went off and, and uh, shortly after married Aristotle Onassis. Now, I'm not saying anything happened here, but seriously, conspiracy theorists, does no one look at that and say, surely we can make a job out of that one? <laughs> 
after the uh, death of Aristotle Onassis in 1975, uh, Jackie Kennedy didn't marry again. Uh, she'd had a history of marrying or being in relationships with very rich and powerful men, stockbrokers. She was actually in a relationship with one of the Churchills at one point in her life. Um, but in 1975, she decided enough was enough, possibly because she'd already lived her life, she'd already been for that power, possibly because the famous and powerful men of that era were people like Michael Heseltine, Rupert Murdoch, and Ronald Reagan. And it doesn't matter how much you like marrying powerful men, eh, no. <laughs> Uh, I think that's my time. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. So the show's in two halves. Uh, we've explored some of the almost random events that have happened on 28th of July in history. Uh, so we want to explore some of the history of York. This is where the panel come, really comes into its own. Obviously, the first thing I probably need to say is that York is, is meant to be the most haunted city in the whole of Europe, with an estimated 500 ghosts in the city centre. And I'm sure the panel will have thought about this. Well, uh, I want to know how they quantify the, find, the, the estimated 500 ghosts in its own right. Do they send somebody out with a PK meter from Ghostbusters? Or, or do they do the Ouija board thing, try and find out how many there are that way? Well, the ghost, he's trying to spell his name out. No, 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 no. Just yes or no answer straight away. We've got a quick survey to do. That's the only way I, I think I think they had a ghost census. They're going round knocking door to door. Hello, you got a ghost? <laughs> yes or no, just yes or no. And uh, that's how they worked it out, what do you reckon? Did you interview a poltergeist? No, he slammed the door in my face. <laughs> so, surely though, the problem with the ghost census is the first question is how many people are living in this house? Like, well, none. Living in this house. I never understand the question, like, like the start of a seance, is anybody there? What if the answer's no? <laughs> a ghost with the ump. <laughs> yeah. There's also a bit of a problem with the 500 ghosts because one of the most famous ghost stories in York actually is ghosts that are only three quarters. So there's a famous story of Roman legion um, that uh, they've been seen by quite a few people, 15 of them walking through uh, a room, uh, but they only start at the knees. So they are three-quarter length ghosts. We did some maths, and we actually think it's 504 ghosts, <laughs> if you account for 15 times three-quarters. Um, but what the interesting thing is that some years after these sightings was archaeologists were digging in this particular area, and they found a Roman road about knee-high below where these ghosts have been seen. So I'd, I've just worked out how you quantify the number of ghosts with a spirit level. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'll leave now because I've got some applause. I don't often. Uh, any more on ghosts? Anyone? No, I, I just love the random ooh at Lisa's maths that just happened from randomly in the audience. Well, that just happens with ghosts' noises anyway. That's true. Ooh. Maybe there's one here. Oh. Yeah. Is this this haunted? Yeah. Okay. So here's a random thing that I read: York's ancient walls are three miles long. Three miles long, uh, that makes them the longest city walls in England, and they enclose an area of about 263 acres. Apparently it's completely legal to shoot a Scotsman within the city walls, but only with a bow and arrow, and especially not on Sundays. Oh, it's Sunday. I've got my crossbow in the car. Do, you can't do any I've work or Sunday. killing on a Sunday? No, yeah. So oh. that's about it. So, uh, where, where does the law stand on street theatre? 
We can't, you can't kill clowns either. Can't you? No. no. You probably need a permit from the council, I guess. But I, saw, cause, so, I saw a street artist I wouldn't mind shooting. Yeah. So, <laughs> it wasn't uh, Scottish it was, and it's a Sunday. Yeah, he was, uh, yeah, he was in chains and on top of unicycles or whatever. So you can't be a mime because they're really difficult to work out if they're Scottish or not. <laughs> you sound like you could work in my defence league. Nice. <laughs> it's the way they dress. I used to be a street performer. Uh, it wasn't going that well, though, but, uh, but my friends, uh, very supportive. They would gather around and they'd say to me, you know, Richard, stick at it. One day you'll find your voice. And, and they were right. And uh, the day I found my voice was the day I lost my job as a mime artist. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me which Roman emperor ruled the whole empire from York? Okay, I, th I thought that'd be a quick trick question, but no one's fallen for it. Because I would have said Constantine, but it wasn't. It was actually Septimus Severus back in 208. So he travelled to Britain and uh, he was sort of strengthening Hadrian's Wall, reoccupied the Antonine Wall, which is further north, and invaded Caledonia, which is modern-day Scotland. So maybe you'd heard about this law. But he died on 4th of February 2011 of an infectious disease. And uh, I think he's buried back in Rome, but he was actually effectively ruling the empire from York for a couple of years. My granddad's called Septimus. So I tell you that. Is he? Yeah. Really? Of course. Yeah. Okay. He was the seventh son of a seventh son. Yeah. That's meant to be very lucky, isn't it? Yeah, it's meant to be a bit spooky, I think. That's why I've talked oh. to so many ghosts, 500 of them. <laughs> That's just a random fact. So, uh, any topic that you'd like me to introduce? Um, it was notable that Nick Turpin, uh, sorry, Nick Turpin? Dick Turpin. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, uh, no, his lesser known uh, cousin, basically. Uh, no, Dick Turpin was hung in York in 1739. I heard, uh, I heard that they hung him well. <laughs> <laughs> well, his legacy lives on to this day. Every You're time obsessed. I visit a service station, I find that it's a stand and deliver situation. <laughs> <laughs> as you, long as I don't have one of those under deliver situations. Are you, are that you ghost in the audience is disapproving now. <laughs> are you adamant about that? Uh, yeah. Wee. <laughs> That's just a random fact then. Yeah, yes, just random okay. facts. More random stuff. Uh, I've got a random a fact for you. Yeah. So um, the most expensive poo ever in the world uh, was found in York in 1972 known as the Lloyds Bank Coprolite. Um, there's a Viking poo that has, and I quote, survived in all its glory. <laughs> <laughs> I love this, I read this in the, in the report about it. The poo showed the poo creator had a diet of meat and bread, and it was an eye-wateringly large poo. But this poo's fossilized, and it, it can be seen um, Hopefully afterwards. In <laughs> but, yeah. um, but what I think is amazing is that the director of the Viking Centre, the Jorvik Viking Centre, had the poo valued. Um, <laughs> they had it valued for insurance purposes. That money for old rope. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he was, um, he was a bit disappointed. It was only valued at £39,000. Um, and he was disappointed because he said, um, this was the most exciting piece of excrement he'd ever seen. <laughs> And I just thought, you know, that's even more valuable than the poo of city traders that have been drinking those champagne cocktails. Where was the gold flakes then? I know. Like, yeah. 
I think he did fairly well on the insurance, because surely the point of insurance is you get back the cost of how much it would take to replace the item. <laughs> and I don't know, but the cost of replacing an unusually large poo full of bread and meat is really just a McDonald's meal. <laughs> well, there's a kind of punchline, because about ten years ago, the poo was dropped by a teacher on a school trip, and it broke into three pieces. And they, um, they applied for the insurance, and the insurance claims said, can you stick it back together with glue? What Sorry. sort of a school trip makes you think, <laughs> I know what this needs? <laughs> Fossilised poo. So, so it's been carried on a school trip? They, they were handling the poo. It wasn't, wasn't Dalton Towers, was it? Oh, so, oh, I see, so the trip came to the poo. Came not, to not, the I poo. thought it meant it was carried around. Oh, like, can you imagine? Trip. Kids, kids, we're having a day out. Okay. We're having a day out yeah. to see a Viking poo. Anyway, that's, that's that. <clears throat> Moving swiftly on. Thank you. Good, excellent. Let's raise the level a bit and talk about York Minster then. So, <laughs> uh, so I had to look up, because what's the difference between a cathedral and a minster? So it seems that it's, it's like a minster's an honorific title attributed to churches which were established a long time ago, so in the Anglo-Saxon period in, in this instance. It's actually officially known as the Cathedral, confusingly, and Metropolitical Church of St. Peter. So, it, so it's a cathedral anyway. Oh. So that, that was quite confusing. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so the, the minister is the seat of Archbishop of York. That uh, makes him the third highest office of the Church of England. So that's after, after the monarch, who's the supreme governor, and then the Archbishop of Canterbury. The site goes back to the year 627. That was when there was a church recorded as being present on that site. So it's a wooden structure, and that was there to baptise Edwin, who was king of Northumbria. And of course, Northumbria went a lot further south than it does today. So a more substantial stone building was built almost immediately afterwards and completed by Oswald and dedicated to St. Peter. So that's presumably where the St. Peter comes from. Uh, two things about the York Minster. My mum actually sang in York Minster. What and a week later it was struck by lightning. <laughs> <laughs> any glass shattered in the process? No, I'm not saying yeah, anything. No. But um, what an interesting thing is that, that the person that got the blame for um, York uh, Minster being struck by lightning in 1984 was David Jenkins, who was then the Bishop of Durham. Uh, and apparently <laughs> there's a bit of bishop kind of controversy going on because um, he was uh, ordained in, in the York Minster and then went out and said that basically he doubted that Mary was a virgin and that caused a little bit of a ruckus and he had a little bit of a, a him in the bish of Canterbury had a little bit of a falling out so so you make it sound like bishops at the time were like premiership football managers just slagging each other off <laughs> no, it's just that's how they sound. There's a bit of a um, touchline rivalry yeah. going on. Like, yeah. so how did it go out there, Archbishop? Oh, it's absolutely terrible, right? Until the Bishop of uh, Donham said that Mary wasn't a virgin. That's uh, absolutely shocking stuff. <laughs> <laughs> did they get a bit more civilised as time went on? No, and in fact, far back in the past, there was a lot more Bishop Envy went on. <laughs> Bishop Envy? <Bishop Henry. laughs> Is that anything like. No. no. <laughs> it's not like Helmet Envy. <laughs> we definitely have a one-track mind. I think it, so. we probably need to move yeah. on. Okay. So the, the Minster's stained glass, it dates back to the 12th century, but much of the glass itself came from Germany. And then over here, it was painted, fired, and, and then glazed. 
The Great East Window dates from the early 15th century, covers more than 2,000 square feet, so again, another record making it the largest expanse of medieval glass in the world. And the creator of that window, John Thornton, received 66 pounds for the work. So it's in Yorkshire, isn't it? So not a surprise. <laughs> so yeah, we've referred to the fire in July 1984, so I'm old enough to remember when that happened. And the probable cause was lightning. They say an 80% chance it was caused by lightning. So whether, whether God started that lightning off or not is, uh, is open to conjecture, of course. Now, firefighters, uh, they deliberately collapsed the roof of the burning south transept. So uh, sort of sh shades of the uh, Minster fire with the recent fire in Notre Dame and, and, the, and the burning roof there. But that collapsing of the roof saved the rest of the building. But it was not actually the first time that the building had suffered major damage. So it was 741, it was destroyed, destroyed in the fire. Damage when William the Conqueror was uh, conquering in 1069. Building destroyed by the Danes in 1075. There was another fire in 1137. There was a major arson attack in 1829, uh, which also destroyed the organ. And there was an accidental fire in 1840, which left uh, the nave southwest tower and south aisle roofless and, and with blackened shells. So it makes me wonder if much of the building isn't really as old as it seems. But so, so uh, the insurance renewal quote must be out of this world. Well, well if, if poo is 39,000, so, uh, goodness knows what the Minster Strike Cathedral is. So. Just wanted to mention the, the stained glass in All Saints Anglican Church in North Street, which actually kind of is even better than the Minster in the sense that it dates back to the 12th century. And that stained glass window uh, depicts scenes from an, an anonymous Middle English poem called The Prick of Conscience, dates from the early 1400s. Does that sound familiar at all? So the poem was arguably the most popular English poem in the Middle Ages, and it describes 15 signs before doomsday. So essentially what they believed in those days was uh, there, were, uh, there was a fortnight during which the world would end, and there'd be 15 signs, the 15th of which would be doomsday itself. Uh, so I just picked out some of those days, so we'll see if we can recognize them when they happen. Uh, so on the first day, the Earth's waters will rise above the mountains, and on the second, the waters will sink so low they can't be seen anymore. And then on the seventh, all buildings will be destroyed. And on the eleventh, men will come out from their hiding places and can no longer understand each other. On the fourteenth, all men will die and the earth burns. And then the fifteenth is Judgment Day. So that's what that window represents so that in was picture form. Was it, so was it Thursday? That was Thursday. Yes. Was yeah. Yes, when it burns. It got a bit warm on Thursday. Okay. Uh, I have to say, if all men die and the world burns on day 14, I don't think they needed to write what happened on day 15. No, it will be <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, that's just overwriting. Yeah. Right. I've got, I've got um, 1719 York Mercury newspaper was established. Um, what's the current best York? Is the, is the York Mercury still going? Is that still a thing? No. No, it's been replaced by newspapers that are doing those out, I'm outraged articles. The classic picture of the mum and the two solemn-looking kids at the front of the shot, I'm guessing. Presumably Mercury went out with asbestos. Ah. The was, so, yeah, <laughs> too dangerous. Uh, but yeah, that's all I've got on Mercury. Okay, it's excellent. Like chiming in with my little bite-sized <laughs> chunks. Yes, okay. So the shambles, which I did mention earlier, is thought to be the oldest street in Europe. I mean, you really go for your historical records here. It's arguably the best-preserved medieval street in the world. So I hope you appreciate all this here in York. Although regarded as the best-preserved medieval street, Lady Row in Goodrum Gate apparently is older, and the cottages there date from 1320. That's seriously impressive. And the Shambles was for centuries a, series, a street for butchers, and the main place where local people came to buy their meat. 
Now, the word shamble is believed to derive from the old English word scramble. I don't know if you're going to correct me on these no, things. No, don't worry, I won't do that. Yeah, it means a stool or bench. So the original meaning gradually evolved. It came to be used uh, to refer to the table or stool on which the meat or fish was displayed for sale and then cut and portioned. And the plural shambles was used to refer to a single place where all the butchers gathered and the meat was sold from stalls. Other UK streets called the shambles can be found in Chesterfield, Chippenham, Whitby and Worcester. And Derby High Street on a Saturday afternoon is a shambles. <laughs> Nothing to do with your family. Mm, possibly. Yes, and no. whatever you do, don't go to Alfreton on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> so with it's unlikely. That, but, so, yeah. <laughs> with the etymology, so the shambles was a street full of stools. Well, yes, we're going yes. back to that one now, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've done it in That's the how order, come so. they got so well yes. preserved. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, so the cobbled channel that runs along the shambles uh, between the raised pavements was used to dispose of the waste, and that would have been washed down the gentle slope towards Fosgate. So sounds like a place to avoid Fosgate. Uh, domestic waste was also thrown from the windows above the street, adding to uh, the unsanitary conditions. Now, some people think that you can stretch your arms across and reach both sides of the street, which, if you actually see the shambles, is evidently ridiculous, unless you're Mr. Tickle or something. Uh, <laughs> I think it may just be possible that two people could reach on opposite sides and just about touch arms, but someone of my size, it's unlikely that would happen. So. Well, quite a hot lot of houses were built so that the upstairs would overhang. Yeah, so was that to make the best use of the available space? Was it a bit like... Um, possibly, or sort of. maybe you could have some kind of weird lover's tryst trying to get in and out of windows with a ladder. Seems a bit over the top to build a building just good so that sharing. you can do... But you never know. Yeah. It was good for sharing fires, I know that much. Also, presumably, sharing fires. when you went to your bucket, oh, you right, didn't yeah. hit the side yeah. of the house. <laughs> so was that what was so bad for the, the Great Fire of London? Was, yeah. was, was a similar thing? Similar yeah. build. And York has survived, obviously, major conflagration, yeah. And therefore, there's so many medieval buildings. That's there, why, so. because they just set fire. Whoever the arsonists are in this town set fire to the minster. Didn't yes, really do it's it. just the minster that, that that's, seems that's to have these it problems. It saved the rest of York, really. Right. Excellent. Okay, so Margaret Clitheroe. Do we know about her? 1586. She was married to a butcher who lived on the shambles. Now, uh, the unfortunate thing for her was that she was a bit of a Catholic, and that was not a good thing in, in the 1580s onwards. So she ran a small religious school and celebrated mass above the family shop, uh, but she was betrayed for her activities. Now, she refused to enter a plea in court because if she said not guilty, she thought the judges would force her children and friends to also betray uh, each other, basically, and deny their faith in public as well. So the penalty for doing that was she was sentenced to be pressed, which is essentially crushed to death. And not only that, but by her own door. So they took the door off the hinges, put it on top of her, put stones on top, and left her to die. So, particularly brutal times, I would suggest yeah. in medieval and times. This is another example. Know, I'm not going to make a joke about that. Um, I think they left oh. her for six hours on the basis they thought that might just be long enough, but I think she was dead within 15 minutes. So, yeah. she's perhaps a godsend under the circumstances. But, uh, It'd be quicker if they used Ronsil. <laughs> that drives a lot quicker. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. A bit late now. Anyway. So uh, she has a shrine dedicated to it. It's at number 35 in the Shambles. Um, it's open every day and Mass is celebrated there at 10 a.m. every Saturday. So her faith lives on in that sense. And do you have to knock on the letterbox to get. <laughs> right. 
couple of minutes left, so I should just briefly mention Guy Fawkes. Yay. Yeah, who's a member of a prov provincial English Catholics as well, who gathered together to do plots against the king, who was a Protestant, and obviously we all know how that ended. But he was born in Stonegate and educated at St. Peter's in New York, so he's from these parts. Father died at eight, and his mother remarried, or, or married a recusant Catholic. So that's where he got his faith from. He had, um, he had a bit of a rough ending and all. He did, didn't he? Um, yeah. He was taken to the Tower of London, and he was tried using the rack. And yeah. by the time they'd finished interrogating Guy Fawkes, he was two inches taller than he had been prior. Um, and it's not really a recommended way of getting anything to, to be bigger, stretching it like mm. that, because it kind of loosens all your, your joints and stuff. Although he didn't survive much beyond that anyway, but no, yes. No, um, um, but I wouldn't recommend the rack. That's, no. That's <laughs> well, I don't think that was the intention of, no, of it anyway. it's not it? a way forward. But um, he's, 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 he was hung, and he was supposed to be hung, drawn, and quartered. Mm which is a particularly horrible death I won't go into the detail of, but he did take a running jump off the gallows because he knew that basically his death was going to be pretty awful. So when they put the rope around his neck, he legged it, broke his own neck and died instantly. Which yeah. It's resourceful, that is. It's a resourceful way of ending. I have no idea how to make that funny. I feel like I've taken this into a very I dark goth well, <laughs> kind of place which is what I do there's a lot of medieval history me. here and, and by, by no. definition it's, it's yeah, a lot of it is gruesome so I just it has got rid of that mental image of a woman dying under her own door though so yeah, I've moved on to a guy <laughs> there is flinging that. Yeah. Yeah. You, so, you, ha you have to handle it sorry. Yeah. but anyway there's ravens at the Tower of London that's a nice thing they're only there because of all the bodies that they used to hang off the Tower oh, of London. I never thought about that. Though. Yeah, there's right. a famous quote. So why from, do they stick around then? Yeah, well, there's a famous quote oh, right. from the king who said, if the ravens ever leave the Tower of London, this kingdom will fall. It's not any superstitious thing. The ro oh, ravens aren't there oh, to like, basically bestow great things on this nation. It's the minute you stop hanging and decapitating people, we'll have no control over this country. That's where it's all gone wrong in this yeah, country. Yeah, and that's why... Boris and our new foreign minister, they're hang well, hanging back to that. Uh, uh, funny you should mention Boris, because when I was looking up Guy Fawkes and reading up about him, when he was first arrested, he gave a false name. And the false name was John Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> John, John Johnson has to be the most uh, unimaginative fake name. So what's your name? Uh, uh, Smith? Smith? Johnson. Oh, Smith <laughs> Smithson. <laughs> Got another bite-sized nice bit. Okay, um, yeah, York you can have the last bit. 1976 start production in York and Norwich, which surprised me that they'd start them in York and Norwich as well, but they couldn't call them Norwiches because that's just an awful name for a chocolate. Well, uh, when I was doing my research, so it's, it's a big chocolate history in this town is one of the things I found out. So as well as the Yorkie bar, it's also the, the, the source, the home of the Terry's Chocolate Orange, which is sort of a big part of the history. Originally, apparently, the Terry's Chocolate Apple was the first attempt. And I can see why it didn't work, but how are you supposed to tap that and break it apart if it's a solid apple? Um, they did try uh, a few other variations of it. They did try other citrus fruit, but apparently that was a lemon. <laughs> Excellent. Our, our, our is up, unfortunately. So it just remains for me to please thank the guests. So we have Alex Leem, Lisa Vernon, Tommy Tomsky, and John Rands. I'd like to also thank 41 Monkgate for hosting us and for the Great Yorkshire Fringe Festival. 
I've got a final on this day to share with you. So Antonio Lucio Vivaldi, he died on this day in 1741. He was the Venetian priest and Baroque music composer, as well as the famous violinist. Now, in a, an ironic note written upon an aria score of his opera Orlando Furioso in 1727, he wrote, Se questa non piace, non voglio più scrivere di musica, which translates as, if you don't like this, I'll stop writing music. <laughs> uh, given that, he ended up writing more than 500 concertos, as well as many operas, overtures, sonatas, and sacred vocal works in his lifetime, we could conclude that Orlando Furioso was well received. Yeah. So, on that bombshell, uh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming and enjoy the rest of the great Yorkshire Fringe. Thank you very much. Thanks.